If you are new or visiting with us this morning, every week at this church, we give away solid gold things to new people. So we're glad you're here. And uh, let me introduce to you what we believe as a church. So there's three things that we believe as a church. And all of this comes from scripture. This is the story of scripture. And it goes like this. The first is that there's hope beyond our brokenness. And clearly this cord is tangled up in this, um, whatever this is. And isn't that a metaphor for our life? <laughs> right? We get tangled up in stuff. And we're trying to sort it out. And what we need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that right now, just as we are, that you're absolutely loved. And that it's okay to be honest about where you are in life. Because we're not trying to paint the white picket fence of our reputation. We are trying to be honest and vulnerable and real about what's going on. Because when we go to the doctor's office, we don't pretend that we're healthy, even though I know some of you do. <laughs> when we go to the doctor's office, we need to be totally vulnerable about all the pains and aches that we have so that we can get healed. And that's what we do in the church. Second, we believe that we're called to trust our risen Savior. So when Jesus, using that medical analogy, says, okay, I'm here's this medicine and here's this physical therapy practice and here's this resource that we would trust that Jesus would know more than we do. So is God smarter than you? Some of you aren't sure yet. Does, does God have your best in mind? Some more of you are sure about that or there's now there's peer pressure. I'm not sure which. Right? So the idea is, is that we trust God, that we would listen to him, we would trust his heart for us, and we would follow his directions because it's always going to turn out better. Third thing that we do, we believe as a church, is that we would bring restoration. So Rebecca this week is going to pass out the change for a dollar bucket, and she gets to be a, a person of hope. And Luke is going to show up to high school and bring pizza to, to kids that don't go to church. And and, and people are being restored and renewed and we're in recovery and we're, in, um, we're praying for people and we're improving our community and, and that's what we do. All of you have a calling on your life right now to make a difference in the lives of other people and so we get to do that together sometimes and sometimes we get to encourage each other as each of us does that exactly where God wants us to be. And so what a joy for us to be together as the body of Christ and to do this work together. So each one of these truths that we see in Scripture has a choice associated with it. And so let's read this choice together of what it looks like to be a disciple or one who follows Jesus. That's literally what disciple in Greek means, a follower. Ready? Here we go. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. One of these days I'll fix that slide, but the only time I remember is right here and now, so I'm excited about that. I have a saying um, that there is, there is no, no such thing as a, uh, something bad that happens on a Sunday morning. Everything that happens is supposed to happen, and and so it's so much fun to sometimes be extemporaneous and to have things that remind us that we're, we're, we're not performing here. Amen? Yeah. I'll not. 
What in the world? <clears throat> John Blanchard, ladies and gentlemen. I fixed it. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you for your spirit here, your presence here. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your mercy. Jesus, we pray protection upon this space. We bind up and silence the enemy now that would be seeking to distract or to put us to sleep or to have us be thinking about something else. Jesus, protect us. And Holy Spirit, like we sang, we welcome you here. Have your way in this place right now in our hearts. Speak to us. Deliver us from bondage, from evil. Use this time powerfully, Jesus. We say yes to you. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're reading in the Gospel of John. Let me catch you up just in case you're new this week. So last week, the last two weeks, we're actually in John chapter 11, and that's when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And what ends up happening after Lazarus is raised from the dead, right, Twitter explodes, oh my gosh, right, Facebook videos, local news goes viral. And so all of the local religious leaders and political leaders get together, and they call a meeting because Jesus is the guy who thus far in this entire calendar year in the book of John has ruined every single major church holiday in Jerusalem, right? So he's wrecked Passover, he's wrecked um, Pentecost, he's wrecked the Festival of the Booths, he's wrecked now Hanukkah, like the whole, like every single time tens of thousands of people gather in Jerusalem, Jesus is there and he's saying, this thing that you're doing is actually about me. And so uh, the religious leaders get worried because the religious leaders in Israel at the time were also the political leaders, right? Your senior pastor is also your mayor, right? The, the senator is also a, the megachurch pastor, the, right? The king is also the head of the church, that kind of thing. And so what they realize is that, is that it, Rome is has been kind, right? They let Herod and his successors kind of be kings. Of course, Caesar is above king. But if you, as, uh, if the Roman legion and the governor, who's Pontius Pilate at the time, looks around and sees that the Jewish people don't have a hold on their crazy religious folks, right? Then, then they, will, they will use the force and might of the Roman legion to make Israel learn that lesson. And that will cost thousands of people their lives. And so the Jewish leaders worry. They worry that Jesus, they're afraid that Jesus is trying to lead a revolution and that Jesus wants to be the new king and get rid of the people in play. And what's crazy is that Jesus keeps on doing these Nuts miracles in which more and more and more and more of the crowd keep on saying, Jesus is the man. Jesus is it. We, we got to follow this carpenter rabbi from the hick town of Capernaum, right? It makes no sense, but that's what's happening. 
So as they gather, as the chief priests and, and leaders gather together, they don't know what to do until the chief priest who's in charge that year speaks up. His name is Caiaphas. We'll later learn more about him during this Holy Week where, uh, where Jesus is about to enter into. And Caiaphas says this, verse 49. Read this with me. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. So Caiaphas, wait, hold on. So Caiaphas is saying, look, don't try and appease Jesus. Don't try and make it, you know, don't try and squash the rebellion. But it's better if one person dies than the Romans come in and kill all of us. So verse 53 then, they all decide on a plan and that plan is really simple. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. They're trying to figure a way out a way to kill the crazy carpenter from Capernaum so that way Rome doesn't come in and wipe everybody out. This would happen in 70 AD, almost 37 years after this takes place. There was a guy, there was a rabbi who claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the king, Titus the general, played by Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins invades Jerusalem, surrounds surrounds this town for a year, causes mass starvation, uh, sets Jerusalem on fire, invades, kills another 200,000 people. Over half a million people died in that, in that siege. And then they light the temple on fire. The temple, of course, is, is covered in gold on the inside of the temple, just like our sanctuary. And, and, and in the fire, the gold melts and it melts in between the cracks of the rocks. And so the Roman soldiers rip apart the temple. They destroy the temple to get to the gold in, in the rocks. And that's when the temple was destroyed and has yet to be rebuilt. Verse 54. So they're plotting to kill Jesus. Therefore, Jesus withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So Jesus spends the winter, January, February, March, April, around Ephraim. Here's a map of where we are. There's Jerusalem on the left arrow. The right arrow is Ephraim. And Ephraim is on, a, the village of Ephraim is on a kind of a, a, a hillside on one side towards the Mediterranean. It's gorgeous, vineyards, beautiful things. On the right side, it's it's wilderness into the middle of nowhere. It's sort of like the Sierras. Western Sierras, gorgeous, wonderful. Eastern Sierras has its own natural beauty, but then you're into the wilderness just a couple miles east of the Eastern Sierras, right? That's a frame. So when Passover rolls around, everyone in Jerusalem, so this is now springtime again, and it's around Easter time, and everybody in Jerusalem expects Jesus to meet their expectations, right? So some people think that Jesus is going to come and do miracles and he's going to break bread and, you know, multiply food and provide free health care and raise dead people from life and restore bank accounts and, right, he just touches your ATM card and, you know, millions are there and touches your, your, your credit card and the balance goes to zero. It's incredible, right? And so they're excited for that. And then there's another group of people there, the religious leaders, and they're expecting Jesus to, like, start the revolution, Okay, and so they're preparing to kill him. 
They've been plotting for three and a half, four months about how they're going to get Jesus. So uh, we'll find out what Jesus does. Ready? Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. R read this with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Remember, Bethany is right outside Jerusalem, two miles outside. It's just a suburb of Jerusalem. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Verse 3, next slide. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard. Uh, this is also called spike nard. Uh, it's, a, it's a plant that grows um, in the Himalayas. It's a bush and it has an earthy um, kind of almost like a, 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 like a earthy herbal scent to it. Really, really, really expensive pure nard at this time could only be found in the foothills of the Himalayas. And so that's why it was so expensive. And if it was the good stuff, it had a sweet flowery overtone that smelled like lavender. Mary's got the good stuff. Verse 3, read it again. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Can you imagine this? I mean, just think about what we've just read here. This is the third time that we've been introduced. Answer, it could be Jesus, Sherry. Um, this is the third time that, that we have a... Uh, someone or that Mary and Martha and Lazarus has been introduced. Do you remember the first time that Mary and Martha served Jesus? Martha was complaining that no one helped her, right? Any complaining this time? Last time we, we, we talked with Mary, Mary was in a pile at Jesus' feet and all she was expressing was her lament and doubt. What is she doing this time? She's at Jesus' feet again, but this time she is loving him, anointing him with this gorgeous smelling perfume, an act of adoration, an act of worship. Last time we met Lazarus, what was he doing? He was stinking, right? That was what he was offering to the world, rot, right? And so Lazarus was stinking, and now he's alive reclining next to Jesus, hanging out with Jesus. This is amazing, okay? Now, this is absolutely incredible, an incredible gift for Jesus. He, he is gonna smell like nard or spike nard for every single day of this most important week, the week that would end with his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, can you imagine Jesus when he's arrested and he's being beaten by Roman soldiers and he falls on his hands and his knees? What does he smell? He smells nard. And he's reminded that he's loved. And he's being nailed to the cross and his eyes are swollen shut because of the crown of thorns. He's been beat all night long and he can't see anything and he can't hear anything, but he can smell. And what does he smell? He smells nard. It's so gorgeous, this image, this picture of Mary and Martha and Lazarus loving and encouraging their friend. 
Now think of this, these last couple of months from Jesus' perspective. You raise your best friend from the dead, and then people try and kill you. No good deed goes unpunished, right? You leave for four months, you come back, your best friends throw you the most incredible party you've ever been a part of, honoring you, uh, truly understanding you in a way that your coworkers are not at the moment. And right in the middle of this tear-filled, aroma-infused, awe-inspiring moment, one of your dear friends who's been walking with you for three years opens his mouth and says this. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Now, Judas is just one of the beloved disciples at this point, and he says this. Why was it this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth like 50 or 60 grand. It's a year's wage. Well, John adds this commentary in. Yeah, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Yikes. We vet all of our ushers, by the way, as they, <laughs> they have a live scan, background check, the FBI is on it. And we have Barb, who's in charge, and no one dares cross Barb. <laughs> Look, Judas does not get what Mary is doing for a lot of different reasons, but here's one of the primary reasons why. Judas is in the future. He's not in the present. And he's in the future worrying that he won't have enough for the poor people that they're going to encounter. Instead of in the present, worshiping Jesus alongside Mary, Judas is in the future worrying. And worrying that he won't have enough, and because he won't have enough, then he won't be enough, and he'll be a disappointment, and he's worrying and worrying and worrying. And Jesus rebukes Judas, or Judas Iscariot for this. Verse 7, I love this. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should ha save this perfume for the day of my burial. Look, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So what is Jesus saying? Look, he's, Jesus is not saying ignore poor people. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying this. Stay in the present tense with me. Don't attempt to predict the future. How many of you have successfully predicted the future? <laughs> oh, come on. You probably have like at least a 20% batting average, right? Anybody? Anybody higher than 50? Just a couple? Good. We have one honest person. She's new today, and she's putting all of you to shame, right? See, we predict the future, and, and, and God is saying, no, 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 don't do that. Stay in the present tense right now. See, in the present, you can experience God's provision and love wouldn't it be tragic is if you're here in the present tense 
and you predict the future. I'm worried about what's going to happen. I'm scared about what's going to happen. I'm fretting about what's going to happen. I'm going to work right now to make sure that what I'm worried about, what will happen, won't happen, and that what I want to happen will happen. And then the thing about the future is, is that you kind of catch up to it, right? And then here now you are in the future. The, the future that you've been worrying about back here, now you're there in the future, right? Uh, wouldn't it be tragic if everything that you worried and fretted and switched about over here and, you know, and worked towards, wouldn't it be awful is if once you got here in the future, let's say God provided all of your needs and answered all of your prayers and it was just fireworks and gorgeous, beautiful things that only God could orchestrate and arrange. But where are you now? Oh, the future. Oh, the future. Oh, I don't know if God is going to help me in the future. And you miss everything that God is providing for you because you're not in the present, you're in yet another future. Stay in the present tense. If you do, you can see all that God has for you. Of course, Judas is in the future. What about the poor people? But he's also in the past. Why did she do that? And some of us live in the past as well. We beat ourselves up for what we should have done or could have done. Do you remember last week? Don't should on yourself. That's an important one. I learned that from my youth pastor when I was 13 years old. It's important, right? Oh, I should have done this and I should have done that and I should have been there and I should have said this. And, and so we're not present, we're in the past. And the thing is, is that Jesus is an expert at taking your past and transforming it. And where does he transform it? Where does he do this work? Right now, in the present. I know this sounds simple, but the present tense is literally where you are. It's a profound truth I've just told you, right? And therefore, the present tense is literally where God is because he promises to never leave you nor forsake you. And what Jesus is saying to Judas is, Stop trying to live where I'm not. Stop trying to live where you can't be. Stop trying to live where you can't do anything. Stay here with me. And you will experience all of the goodness and all of the beauty that Mary is experiencing right now. Because Mary spends fifty dollars to $60,000 on worship and it's worth it. Because she gets to be with Jesus in the present. Jesus calms your fears in the present. Jesus heals your past in the present. Jesus works towards your future in the present. Stay in the present. So can we do a little exchange? Bad out, good in. Can we do that? Here it goes. I'm going to give you a preview so you can fully not participate or participate with resistance or doubt. But here it goes. Ready? Here it is. 
It says this, I reject the lie that I'm being productive if I worry about what will happen or what has happened. Jesus, you're enough for me at all times, past, present, future, up, down, left, right, sideways, right here in the present. Can we say that together? Can we pray that together? Let's do this. I reject the lie that I'm being productive if I worry about what will happen or what has happened. Jesus, you are enough for me at all times right here in the present. Good job. Good job. Way to go. Okay, verse 9. Let's read together. Meanwhile, a large crowd... So TV crews are pouring in, Twitter's on fire, right? Everybody's like trying to get a selfie with Jesus and Lazarus at the same time. Check it out, dude was dead, right? Okay, next slide. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. I love this, right? His only crime was being alive. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I mean, they probably went to Lazarus. So, Lazarus, tell me your story. What happened here? Well, I, I was dead. And what was that like, Lazarus? I, I don't know. I was dead. I mean, you can just, you know, see the, the local KSBY anchor, like, awkwardly asking questions. This is, this is what was happening. It was Lazarus, right? So... But this is how fear works for these chief priests. You predict the future. Uh, fear does two things simultaneously. It has you predict the future, right, which none of us can do all that well. And then it has us getting busy to prevent that future from happening. And this is a two-step tango dance, right? One is prediction, one is action. And um, the irony and the horrible tragedy of fear is that we predict the future and then ironically, we make that terrible future happen by the very actions of trying to prevent it. That's the insidiousness of fear. We predict that terrible things will happen and then we go do that and then we actually make it happen. So, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is coming. Verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting. Oh, that was so not shouting. <laughs> Hosanna is God saves. That's what the Hebrew means. You're saying, you are God and you save. So, I'll read it again. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Yeah! Then, now they're going to quote from the Psalms. These are, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a psalm specifically for the future Messiah or Savior. They shouted this. Ready? Here it is. Shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they go political and they go to a psalm that says, he's not only the God who saves, he's not only our savior, this Jesus is also our king. And they scream out, blessed is the king of Israel. 
So the very strategy that the Jewish leaders were trying to avoid by trying to kill Jesus was creating the exact problem that they wanted to avoid. This is the beginning of the week. What are they going to shout at the end of the week? Come on, shout it out. Yeah, we have no king. We have no king, but... Right? I mean, they're saying they're rejecting all of these things. You're not our savior. If you can truly save, come off the cross yourself. We have no king but the ones that have been appointed to us. Crucify him. This, they're shouting the exact opposite of what is happening. So what has Jesus been through? And what are the last four months of Jesus' life look like? Right? A lot of ups and downs. His friends die. Oh, no. Then he raises them back to his life again. Yay. Then he's running for his life. Oh, no. And then he comes back to his friend's house and he experiences the best party he's ever had. Yay. And then he enters Jerusalem and everybody is singing his praises. Yay. And at the end of the week, they're shouting, crucify him. Oh, no. The journey of life is full of ups and downs. Life is full of celebration and grief, joy and pain, weddings, funerals, relationships full of love and heartache. Uh, this is normal. I, I journal four to five times a week. Mike and Joni Stallings helped me do that by saying, come put your feet in the pool and journal. And I've been going ever since, so thank you. And, and so um, I just finished a journal this last week. It took me two and a half years to, to finish a journal this thick. And it was so much fun flipping through all of the pages. And you know what I saw? I saw ups and downs, incredible blessings, lots of pain. And one of the things that struck me is that I had not written a single entry about the physical pain that I've been through this last year. I didn't know, I didn't know this about myself, but my, my bones grow, I grow bone spurs. A spur is just a bump on your bone. And, and so it's lots of calcium. And I tell my doctor, look, a cheesecake a day is not too much. <laughs> and I've been fired three times now, but from doctors, they don't want to work with me anymore. But um, anyways, it's genetic. There's nothing I can do about it. And so I was stretching last fall, of all things, and this bone spur started to damage the gaskets and ligaments inside my hip and tore things up. And I, it had been tearing things up for a long time. Well, in the autumn, I was in pain maybe an hour a week, you know, after like a strenuous day. But I was still working out, having fun. By January, I was in pain two or three hours a day, especially after the, at the end of the day. Uh, by, by May, I was, uh, April, I was in, in pain six to eight hours a day. And by the by the middle of May, I was in pain 24 hours a day. And, uh, and then in June, I had surgery, and now I'm out of all-day pain. Praise God. It's great. So, oh, don't stop it. So, yay. Another surgery. Great. And um, so, so, so here's, the, here's the interesting part about, about this journey of pain is that it was my wife who had to sit me down in la the latter half of July and say, 
what is going on with you? You have not been yourself for the past four months. You know, when you're with other people, you're chipper and happy and, oh, there's Sunday morning Andy. But when you're home, you're like flat and distant and weird, like what's going on? And she had tears down her eyes. And I finally told her what I just told you about the level of pain that I've been in physically for this last year. And so it, here's what I'm learning about how I've dealt with pain this last year. In the, in, in the past, I would have been full of self-pity. Um, you know, and thankfully God has healed that part of my heart that feels like I've been orphaned and that when something goes wrong, that God has left me. So that's not there anymore. So I don't have self-pity about what the pain I've gone through, but now I've swung the pendulum to the other end of the spectrum. And my strategy this last year was just simply to bulldoze through the pain. John, don't bulldoze through your pain. I know you have a golden bulldozer. It'll be tempting, right? But... John moves earth for a living with very large machines. Um, and, and so that's bulldozing through the pain is not a better strategy than wallowing in self-pity. Um, and so I was thinking about how I dealt with pain all week long this week. And, and then do you ever have those weeks when God orchestrates conversations just for your sake? Do you have that alarm bell inside that goes like this? And God says, this is for you. Do you have that too? That's, that's how God speaks to me sometimes. All of these conversations are lining up at the exact same time. And it's like, all right, I get it. That was this week for me. So I had these two friends, and they both told me the exact same story. One of them is swimming 10 miles from the coast to Catalina Island, um, training for it right now. The other is running 50 miles in one shot next week. Both of them are my friends. Both of them are older than me and in much better shape than I am. Um, and they both shared with me, I was like, how, how are you going to do this? And they both shared with me the strategy about how to accomplish this incredible, these incredible physical feats. So you ready? This is their strategy. When they both said it at the, they both said it, I spoke to one on Monday and one on Wednesday, and they both verbatim said the exact same strategy. Here it is. Here we go. Strategy for endurance. Number one, you will be in pain, so recognize it. This is, I failed with my hip pain this last year because I never recognized it. Number two, eat when you're hungry, then keep on going. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a, this is, this, is in, this is crazy. What kind of, this is nuts, right? Verse three, rest when you're tired, then keep going. What? What kind of self-care strategy is this? This is like speaking French. Okay, the next slide. Four, ask your friends or family for help. You can't do this alone. Keep going. Yeah, this is nuts, right? I know, this seems ludicrous. And then five, stay present in the moment, breaking down the larger task into bite-sized chunks. Six, and as they're telling me this, the Holy, kept on, Holy Spirit kept on saying, this is for you, Andy. This is for you, Andy. This is for you, Andy. And here's what I'm learning in my life, present tense this week, that our lives are like an open ocean swim or a 50-mile run, a long journey with lots of ups and downs. And just like Jesus in this four short months of his life, 
that we're reading today, just like my friends who are preparing for these incredible feats of strength, we're going to experience the same ups and downs in our own lives. We're going to have time when everything is fantastic and times when everything falls apart. And the strategy that my friends are using is the exact same strategy that Jesus uses because it works. When Jesus is harassed and pursued, he takes time to rest in the town of Ephraim. But he hasn't given up his goal. He's going to keep on going. When Jesus is going to face the toughest week on planet Earth, the first thing that he does is he asks for help from his dearest friends and they give it to him so that he can keep on going. When Jesus is experiencing his worst pain, both in the Garden of Gethsemane and then on the cross itself, right, he cries out to God in prayer. He stays present in the moment and cries out to God in prayer and then keeps on going. And that's so comforting to me because it means that Jesus is fully human. He's not Superman. Look, he knows the exact limitations we face because he faced them himself. And the strategy to get through a long journey with ups and downs has been the same for thousands of years. Recognize your pain. Rest. Eat. Talk about it. Pray. Surround yourselves with friends and family who are willing to help. Stay in the present and keep going. Now, we've been reading this perspective, the story from the perspective of how Jesus pushes through all sorts of pain and stress. And this is good. We need to know how Jesus lived his life so that we can learn from Jesus about how to live from ours. But I'm going to bet that you will forget everything that I just told you in an hour and a half. Maybe earlier. Maybe you just woke up. Right? So that's not the only story in John chapter 12, this passage. Because we also need to know why Jesus pushes beyond all of this stress and obstacles. Because sometimes, well not sometimes, every time when we experience pain, we get tunnel vision and we lack the ability to hear and we have a hard time speaking. So why does Jesus keep on pushing through all of this incredible pain and stress? We know how he does it. Why does he do it? Yeah, it's you. He pushes through all of the stress and pain for you. Jesus freely chooses to go through harassment, constant threats, arrest, torture, and the agony of the cross for you. See, it would be a tragedy if you found yourself running this race a long race with lots of ups and downs. And you even implemented Jesus' strategy to rest and recognize your pain and eat and ask for help and, and to stay in the present moment and keep on going. Let's say you did all of those good things. It would be a tragedy if you did all of those good things, but you forgot why it is that you're running. See, there is no prize for finishing first. There is no prize to this life for finishing with the most toys. There is no prize for finishing with the biggest bank account, right? 
David Koch, one of the richest people in the whole world, died this last week. No one cares. He's gone. Right? What's the prize? The prize is this, that as you run your life, you would know a beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God who is head over heels in love with you is with you every step of the way. Amen. Why? Because Jesus is your prize. He's the prize. Right? Just like Kurt and Cindy were saying, they were Christian free agents, right? Whose team are we going to sign on? And what did they discover in the journey? Ah, uh, that Jesus is their prize. That they could go to him and have all the resources that they need. And why is Jesus your prize? This is the miracle. Because you are his prize. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you bless and seal these good words, these songs, these truths into the hearts of my friends today. Guard them. Protect them. Grow in them something gorgeous and beautiful. Lord, thank you for them. As we run this race, I pray for those who are weary today. Lift them up. For those who need rest today, rest today. May they experience it now. God, we turn our eyes to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. You are our prize. And we're so grateful that you've done all of this for us. So we glorify you, Jesus. We give you praise and thanks. We're so thankful for you. And all God's people said,